You are listening to Dearest Benjamin, a fictional podcast series by Verna A. Ringlander. We will begin right after this. If you want my future, forget my past. If you want to get with me, better make it fast. Now don't go wasting my precious time. Get your act together. We could be just fine. I am still so sorry I didn't go to Walter's wedding. I'm pretty certain he didn't mind. It was a very difficult time for me. I had just been laid off from a job I held for less than two years, one I took in Seattle, a city far from home, in hopes I could start off fresh somewhere new after clawing my way up from retail back into office work. I had no prospects. I had also just broken up with Boris, too, an investment banker, or as Conrad liked to call him, Bor-us. There's not much to say about Boris. We lived together briefly. I thought it could work, but as soon as I moved in with him, the affection shrank. I couldn't wait to move into his gorgeous apartment with a view of the Seattle skyline and a giant, sweet St. Bernard he loved so much more than me, though he treated me more like a mother than a lover. His actual mother? A darling woman. As an immigrant, she spoke six languages and worked in legal advocacy for non-English speakers. She introduced me to her friends, all powerful and interesting people, and spoke so highly of my artwork and my writing to them. She bought one of my paintings. She even loved my band and came to see us perform almost as many times as Boris did. I admit I held off from breaking up with him because I didn't want to part with her. When I finally had enough, I broke up with Boris when I leaned down to give him a kiss goodbye and he grunted, ugh, get off of me, when I was leaving for work and he was playing a video game. When I came home early that same day, I caught him looking at porn and we hadn't had sex in months. I found an apartment and moved out while he was on a work trip. He told me I was cold. I told him he was frigid. I still miss his dog. Anyway, I got this great little apartment on my own on the Sound, and I was finally finding my feet in my new city after a few years there when the rug got pulled out from under me and I lost my job. It sucks because I really wanted to go to Walter's wedding, mostly because I knew you'd be there. In retrospect, I'm not sure what that would have accomplished, but I do remember thinking I would wear a snug red dress and dye my hair a very, very dark brown. However, no matter what I wore, I figured nothing would look great on me if I showed up alone. I would seem desperate and pathetic, plus I'd rack up my credit card debt, which would only be worth it if I could get a good date to go with me. So I asked Conrad, naturally. He said, on one hand, I want to go, just so I can catch the two of you cottaging in the men's room at the reception and witness the drama that will surely unfold. And on the other hand, he's probably in the wedding party and bringing his wife and young children, so no, that wouldn't be funny at all. 
and I don't want to deal with your nuclear emotional fallout when we come home from you having to see that, so no. I knew he was right. Of all the same, I drummed my credit card on my keyboard and shopped flights online several times over the course of a few days. In the end, I sent Walter an email telling him I was broke and out of a job and to have a wonderful time and congratulations. His response? Are you sure? Benjamin will be there. It'll be just like the good old days. Come on, you have to be there. I'm not sure what he meant by saying Benjamin will be there to get me to change my mind, but I convinced myself it had nothing to do with those with what those good old days meant for me. Walter and I look back on that point of nostalgia from radically different angles. After all, he met his future wife that day that terrible storm hit when I was visiting you at your parents'. Vanna was there to see you and found us all there hanging out, smoking a big joint and plopped herself down next to Walter, the guy who would become her future husband, and watched movies with us and jumped on the trampoline with us and watched in awe as that storm rolled in at the picture window. Yes, I was there. And I can see from Walter's point of view that I should be there to see the story end. No, continue at his and Vanna's beautiful wedding. So no, it was not a good idea, and what Conrad said about emotional fallout really stuck with me. I had worked years at that point to get over everything that had happened between you and me, and none of it had healed as much as I thought it did, especially if I was imagining myself there alone in a tight red dress. I'm so proud of myself for putting my credit card away and stuffing the pain down for another day. Looking back, Conrad was right. I would have come home to an apartment I was afraid I could no longer keep. I would be unemployed. I would be single and alone. I would have the sting of rejection reopen terrible wounds, fresh and old alike. And I would be devastated to see you and Letitia and God forbid meet your beautiful children and fall in love with their adorable little chubby faces and probably who have your eyes. Within a year, however, I would finish out the lease of that wonderful little apartment by the skin of my teeth and move back to the Midwest and in with Winnie to help her take care of her and Garrett's two kids when Garrett was stationed abroad. Before that, though, I had been to visit them a handful of times, especially over Thanksgiving or Christmas, when my parents would be there, too. I told them I was thinking of moving back to the Midwest to be closer to family and closer to a life that made more sense. Boris came with me once, partly because I knew it would be fun to show him another state he hadn't been to, and partly because I knew he would not let me stay. Boris got annoyed with me because Winnie offered to let him hold the new baby when my first nephew was born, and I answered for him, Oh, no thank you. He shot me a glance, reached over to Winnie and said, I'd be happy to. Watching him hold that tiny child so tenderly and sweetly taught me two things. One, that he definitely wanted to be a father. And two, that I definitely did not want to have a kid with him. Winnie picked up on that right away, of course. We looked at each other and had an entire conversation with our eyes about how Boris wasn't the right guy for me, but how that didn't make him a bad person, just not the one, while neither of us had to say a word. I went out with a few old friends that night to a bar called Oxbloods, including a few ex-boyfriends I rang up to say where I'd be that night, 
because I felt bored and reckless. Katrina was there with some guy, Ronan. She'd been dating a while. You remember Katrina? She was the one, when you came to visit me my senior year of high school, who hadn't gotten the memo and hit on you the whole time. You might remember her as the girl who was always drunk. Anyway, this was one of those times in Katrina's life where she was really starting to get her shit together. And we were all really happy for her. She met Ronan doing some catering gig in Minneapolis, and it turned out he was this international award-winning photojournalist. He showed up late after Katrina spent a half hour talking about how amazing he was. We all found Ronan pretty impressive, and they seemed so in love. Inside, I was seizing. Here I was, flanked by attentive exes, who were getting their shit together too, and holding down great jobs, and finding meaning in life, and having their own place, and keeping their rent paid. And Boris, who couldn't be found for most of the night because he was completely disinterested in meeting my friends, itching to fly home the next day, where I would rejoin a staff of co-workers and a manager at my corporate job, who I soon found out all hated me and couldn't wait to see me go. And Katrina? She had someone like Ronan, and was working catering gigs where she was meeting guys like Ronan. It made me want to throw up, and I did. And some ex-boyfriend held my hair in the bathroom while another ex-boyfriend looked for my boyfriend to make sure he got me home okay. I moved out of Boris's place not even a month after our return flight landed. It was glorious having my own place. I didn't even have to own my own car because the bus can take you anywhere in Seattle in theory and you can walk nearly anywhere else. By then I had found some people to perform with and formed a new act. I made a few good friends during shows, mostly people who like to drink and go dancing. Some of them even like to do coke. Quite a lot of coke. They also love to share. Despite everything from my past, I finally tried it and very much enjoyed it. But I maintained a healthy paranoia about getting addicted. I simply refused to hang out with those friends too often because they always had it. And I always loved doing it. And I always regretted it. Two of those cokehead friends, a bandmate and her girlfriend of many years, decided to have a fabulous wedding out on some resort island off the coast of British Columbia one summer, so we all gathered there and got hammered for a long weekend. It was glorious. I wore a bikini for three days straight, even to sleep, except for when I was skinny dipping or hooking up with an artist whose paintings I greatly admired, who I was starstruck to meet in his glamping tent. Turns out he was a big fan of our band. When I got home, I turned my cell phone back on to a cacophony of voicemails from Katrina, some of them from my call box at my apartment. She had come to Seattle all the way from Minnesota, chasing some guy she hooked up with online, and they had a falling out. And she showed up at my place expecting me to take her in. When I didn't answer, her voicemails grew increasingly agitated and confusing. She kept asking if I was mad at her, and would I please forgive her? I had no idea what was going on, hungover as hell. I rolled up my luggage to my flat, put on pajamas, and called Katrina back. 
She breathlessly begged me to meet her up for coffee, and she would explain everything. I sat down across from her and slowly ate a piece of cherry pie and a cup of black coffee while she explained that she had fallen in love with Boris. And he had convinced her to fly out to see him, but he treated her like shit, so she left and had nowhere to go. I was flabbergasted. Part of me wanted to slap her, and part of me wanted to hug her and tell her I knew how that felt. She and I both acknowledged that was the end of our friendship when she asked if I could take her in until her flight home, and I told her no. I asked her, where are you staying? She answered the name of a really expensive hotel near Boris's place, the kind where if you can afford two nights, you can afford a third. I assume that's what happened. Why won't you just forgive me, she implored. I told her it wasn't about forgiveness. It was about bad boundaries. I was tired. I needed to sleep off a fun but exhausting trip. And I wasn't really upset about her trying to hook up with Boris so much as I was confused as to why Boris when there are millions of other men in the world. I fell in love with him from the moment I first saw him that night you brought him to Oxbuds. Ugh. What about Ronan? I thought you two were so in love. He dumped me months ago. Have you been listening? I hadn't. In fact, I got up and left. A few months after that, I was let go. I collected unemployment and moved back to the Twin Cities, and Winnie had a tiny baby boy and an active screaming toddler, and Garrett was away. I got a message on social media not long after that from a name I definitely recognized. It would be lovely to meet you for coffee sometime, it read. We clearly have a lot in common. Welcome home, Ronan. Knowing that I would be looking for work and Ronan knew lots of people, I gladly accepted. I brought Winnie up to speed on the whole scenario, including Katrina, whom she barely knows, unlike a lot of our friends. Winnie scoffed at me for even questioning it. It's just coffee. You're not even friends with Katrina anymore, and she was never a very good friend to you anyway. And well, yes and no. You see, I had this friend Sydneya back in Seattle. Sydneya was one of those cocaine friends I mentioned earlier. In fact, she was the one who introduced me to it. However, Sydneya had a drug problem. And as you know, I'd seen this type of thing before. Our mutual friends suggested we stage an intervention. And so at some point, we got up the nerve and well, it did not go well. Sydney ran off to L.A. and got into some really terrible trouble with the law. She's fine now, actually. No thanks to our train wreck of an intervention. She got clean a few years later when she got pregnant. Thank God, because I'm her kid's godmother. Katrina, on the other hand, didn't have the same drug problem I'd seen before that would allow me to identify it as such. To Katrina, making appointments with every dentist in Minnesota and Wisconsin, asking for a prescription before she arrived, were as innocent as making crank phone calls, except that in the end, you ended up with a lot of really heavy drugs the government doesn't have a problem with, in little individual serving packets. This was something I viewed with some serious side-eye, but as long as Katrina held on her job and maintained a somewhat functional existence, 
I didn't really give it a lot of thought. Besides, as you know, we'd been friends for years. Meanwhile, Winnie's mother, my brother's mother-in-law, who thinks of herself like an auntie of mine, and rightly so, asked me all about him when she met him in passing while she was visiting her grandchildren, my nephews, while I was still living there with them. We're just friends, I told her. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That man is really into you. He's successful and honest and kind and the boys love him. What's the problem? With that in mind, Ronan and I weren't able to stay just friends for very long. All the same, we kept it a secret from Katrina, whose mutual friends of mine began to dwindle. Katrina's life began to fall apart and she became abusive to everyone just as we had dealt with when Sydney had spun out on us. She quit her job to move in with some distant relatives in Detroit, and we were relieved she was no longer where she could show up at the same bar, the same coffee shop, the same parties. Ron and I got serious rather fast, and in my family that seems to be the way things go. You remember when Winnie met my brother over Thanksgiving? Our mom said something that really stuck with me. Good things happen fast. She repeated it again to a lesser degree in reference to Ronan and me. He helped me move out of Winnie's when my brother came home and helped me get all of my furniture out of storage and into my own place later that summer. We discussed living together and I told him it wasn't a good idea to do so quite that fast. Besides, I said, we're not even engaged. That's something engaged people do. Sometime right before Christmas, I made Ronan dinner at my apartment, and he asked me how I felt about the diamond industry, as in, had I seen the movie Blood Diamond, and what did I think of it? I told him I thought diamonds were a joke, and that if I ever got married again, I would prefer a nice trip to Europe as a token of engagement, which costs exactly the same. Later that week, we went to the Christmas party at our friend Jamila's. And the whole gang was there, out on the balcony, smoking very clandestine last cigarettes before we gave them up for New Year's, or at least said we were. Winnie and a few other ladies were asking me about Ronan and how serious things were getting. Would I be getting a diamond for Christmas? The other day he asked me about my opinion of the movie Blood Diamond, and I told him that I think that diamonds are trash, and I'd rather go to Europe for the same amount of money. They all giggled. Oh, wow, Jamila snickered. That does sound pretty serious. You think so? Because Ronan and I talk about all types of films, so I don't want to assume it was the diamond conversation. Oh, honey, Winnie sneered with a swig of her wine. Any diamond conversation is the diamond conversation. No, we didn't get engaged that Christmas. Instead, we got a phone call the morning of Christmas Eve from Katrina's father that she died of an overdose all alone. I should say at this point, this is a story I'm not proud of. It's my story. Rather, it's one of the most important stories of my life, but it's filled with regret. Please don't be angry with me, Benjamin. I'm angry enough at myself. We spent the day before New Year's Eve at her memorial ceremony. 
scattering ashes in a gray and lifeless wintertime version of the park she'd always loved, the Centennial Butterfly Park. Shivering as we struggled with how to mourn while in terrible shock. Katrina always loved butterflies, her father said so bravely, as the ashes dusted a nearby hedgerow. She had a butterfly bedroom growing up. She had a butterfly tattoo on her hip. He asked everyone, about a dozen of us, to form a circle and say a few words of remembrance. Everyone chose that opportunity to explain why they thought Katrina's death was their fault, including Ronan and myself. Our stories sort of all blended together. None of us were taking her calls anymore. No one was reaching out. We were all keeping our distance for our own personal reasons, all of us under the guise of protecting ourselves, protecting our energies from her abuse. This is all valid on some level. That's the thing about suicide, I realized. We who are left behind when someone kills themselves, we're angry at a murderer and we look for someone or something to blame. And we have to reckon that we are angry at the victim of the murder because they are their own perpetrator, which doesn't make sense. So when that becomes too difficult to parse, the only other blame we could place was on ourselves for not doing anything or everything to prevent it. At Ronan and my wedding some months later, outdoors in Winnie and Garrett's backyard in a red strapless dress I made out of silk chiffon, a butterfly with a tattered wing landed on my bare shoulder, appearing in nearly all the pictures of the ceremony. I have to assume that Katrina had something to do with that. It's a thought that gives me peace, to believe that was her way of giving us her blessing. <laughs>